All right, welcome to day 72 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at uh, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14, all the way through the end of Leviticus, which is the end of chapter 27. Um, then Proverbs 7, verses 1 through 5, and we'll finish it off with Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. I am recording a little bit later in the day than I usually do, and so uh, if there are some background sounds, I uh, just ask that you bear with me, especially my five-month-old son upstairs who uh, thinks this is a good time to cry really loudly. So, uh, anywho, uh, trucking on here, let's begin in Leviticus 26, verse 14. And as I said yesterday, uh, Leviticus 26 is really known as the Blessings for Obedience and Curses for Disobedience chapter. This should not be taken in isolation from what the rest of the Old Testament says. We've already read Job, which is you know kind of good to keep in mind when you read portions of the Bible like this, and not just Job, but other places that um, balance these ideas out. So what I mean is that the Bible does not simply portray a scenario in which if you do if you do what God wants you to do, then he's going to give you good things, and if you do what he, uh, if you disobey him, then he'll give you bad things. It's more complicated than that. Uh, but I, th- I think it is important to realize that the, that the scriptures do hold out that the Lord's blessing does fall on the righteous. Uh, perhaps the way to frame it, at least in part, at least you know, part of how this puzzle goes together, is that um, while there may be uh, troubles and trials for a period, for a season, in the end, the Lord does uh, reward the righteous with blessing. And uh, of course, there are other things in the mix there as well. Uh, there is the factor that as Paul says, and as as we've already seen in the Psalms, uh, none is truly righteous. None is truly deserving of God's favor and mercy. In fact, that's why it's called grace. So there's a lot of different elements to this. Nevertheless, the general way that God wants his people thinking is he wants us to understand that he is just, he is good, and he, uh, he does good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And this looks a very particular way under the Old Covenant, where this is a national covenant being given to um, a people composed of believers and unbelievers alike, um, and that the general direction of the people does affect whether or not they will experience the blessings of the covenant. Um, And so this is what this chapter is about. And so here we have a bunch of scenarios in which, uh, as we saw yesterday, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then, and and God lays out the blessings that will result. Here we have something, uh, kind of the other side of that. If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules— so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then. And the first thing delineated here in that first paragraph is going to be uh, things like sickness, um, enemies. Now, enemies, first of all, affecting 
the, the fact that your seed is going to be sown in vain. So the idea is you're going to sow your seed, but the enemies will, your enemies will reap what you sow. And, uh, but also you will be struck down by your enemies. Even when none pursues, you will flee. And uh, this is a, a, actually a common thing in especially ancient warfare, that one of the big challenges, believe it or not, in battle, especially if you don't have a trained standing army, uh, especially if you're not super well equipped, the danger of fleeing is a real thing. In fact, one of the main one of the main tasks of of military strategy is how to not get people to freak out and run, and um, and so that's the idea here. You're you're so you become will become so afraid that you will flee even though none pursues. See this also in verses thirty six and thirty seven. As for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts. In the lands of their enemies, the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. So that's what that is. Now, here you have the notion of being struck sevenfold for their sins. I don't think that what this means is that uh, God will literally take, uh, let's say, the moral deficit that you have because of your your sin and then make you pay seven times for it. I think this is the idea of, of perfect punishment here. Now, this number seven often denotes that. Note that we also saw this with the um, with Cain, uh, where anybody who, um, who harms Cain uh, would be, the vengeance would be visited on that person sevenfold. Um, and we see the idea of sevenfold vengeance repeated in pretty much every paragraph here dealing with Israel's disobedience. Um, their pride will be broken, their, their, their heavens will become as iron and their earth as bronze. Think of that in an agricultural um, uh, society, right, where, where you are heavily dependent on rain for your crops and, and you need the land to yield in order to live. So the idea of frustrating harvests and and uh, and the, the growth of crops and things like that, and the land will have no increase. So this certainly is a terrible thing that results from uh, from not listening to the Lord. <clears throat> and in one sense, this is just judgment. This is uh, retribution, retributive justice for having done uh, for having not obeyed the Lord's commandments and having done un- unrighteousness. And, and let's keep in mind a lot of the things that we've seen commanded, right? It's not just these, these holiness, purity, and things like that, but a lot of this is how you treat the poor, how you treat your neighbor. Are you acting justly? Are you acting honestly and fairly? So a lot of this is very much... Um, uh, directed towards one's neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't do that stuff, you are going to be held accountable for that. So there is a sense in which this is re- retributive justice for that, but there's, al- there's also a sense in which these judgments are intended to turn Israel, to turn their heart back to the Lord. And I think that's a very real thing that we see in Scripture, is that hardship, while we can certainly interpret it as God's judgment. Uh, I don't think that's unbiblical. I think it's sometimes very difficult in particular instances to say, you know, I'm going through this hardship and I know for a fact that this is God's judgment and what it's his judgment for. Um, but, um, 
But one other thing that we can say about God allowing and even bringing hardship into our life is that its purpose is to turn us to him. And so you have a lot of this kind of language. Um, Then if you walk contrary to me and you still will not listen to me, verse 21, verse 23, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, Verse 27, if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, right? So there's this idea of like, in spite of me having done this and, and shown you, you you guys are off the path. This is serious business. Get serious about your walk with me. Repent. Um, if in spite of these things, you still walk contrary. And so then the first thing, uh, the first set of this is given in 21, um, I will continue to do these things, essentially. You have the mention of sevenfold retribution again. And here, uh, wild beasts will be a factor in the land. Your children will be vulnerable. Your livestock will be vulnerable. And then we get the next one in verse 23. If by this discipline you are not turned, again, the sevenfold language, the sword will come after you as vengeance for the covenant. Uh, and you have uh, siege conditions beginning to be... Um, conveyed here. Um, sieges are one of the most terrifying piece, uh, uh, forms of, of warfare. People hold up in a city with an army outside, uh, the army not only dis- uh, ravaging your fields and, and eating all your crops and everything, but the, essentially starving out the people inside um, under, under pain of death. Uh, think about the pressure that that puts on a city's leadership. It's terrible. And, um, and in those cities, you'll gather in those cities, there will be starving, there will be pestilence. And if you still walk contrary to me, and we actually see this played out in the book of Jeremiah, by the way, where even during the siege, Jeremiah is going around and, and uh, preaching, uh, among other things, repentance, and yet the leadership of Jerusalem is recalcitrant and refuses to, to turn. Um, and then Perhaps one of the most horrifying aspects of siege life, um, the eating of human flesh, the eating here it says of your of your sons and your daughters. Uh, that is how desperate things get when your city has been besieged for months and months and months. It talks about the high places that they have constructed, and I don't know if we've actually um, seen this expression before, but we will certainly see it more in the Old Testament. So high places basically refer to sanctuaries that are uh, were constructed atop hills, um, possibly because, you know, they're closer to the heavens, they're closer to the, the realm of, of, of divinity. But these are unauthorized sanctuaries, often in Israel towards foreign deities. And um, so these would have been um, idolatrous worship shrines on top of hills. Um, indeed, one of the indictments that um, will later be made about Israel is you laid down on every high hill and under every green tree. Um, these are indictments of their idolatry. Um, so uh, the idea here is, is God will tear down those high places and will litter them with bodies. The cities will be laid waste. The sanctuaries, of course, idolatrous sanctuaries, but perhaps even a defiled sanctuary of Yahweh will be desolate, so desolate that when the enemies try to repopulate your area, the the people who settle will be appalled with how bad the land is. 
Uh, meanwhile, you will be scattered among the nations. This does portend what will eventually happen to Israel. Um, then it says, and, and recall back the laws in chapter 25 about the Sabbath years so that the land can have its rest, right? You get your rest on the sixth day, the land, uh, sorry, on the seventh day, the land gets its rest on the seventh year, and of course in the years of Jubilee. Well, here, uh, the idea is that Israel has not kept their bargain, their, this part of the covenant, and um, now that they are removed from the land, the land will have mercy from the people who sought to exploit it. The land will enjoy its Sabbaths. Um, and as for you in the land of your enemies, exiled, taken out, dispossessed, um, you will experience faintness even there. Even there, if you're not turning to me, you are going to experience my judgment. I will unsheath the sword after you, it says. Uh, you will perish among the nations. You will be eaten up among them. And indeed, many of the deportations of Israel, the, the, their, their identi identities of as Israelites eventually kind of dissolve. Like we know where they were populated to um, based on the records from these other nations, particularly Assyria. Uh, I'm talking about what will eventually happen to the Israelites in uh, 722 BC, ultimately, and then uh, six, uh, 586, 587 uh, at the hands of Babylon, but particularly with the Assyrians, right? Like a lot of these other kingdoms kind of, the, the, these, uh, not the other kingdoms, but the northern kingdom of Israel, I'm kind of introducing terminology that if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you might be a little confused, but the basic idea is that um, a number of tribes are dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire, and they just kind of eventually dissolve and, 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 are, and are never really heard from again. I suppose one way we could refer to this would be as lost tribes of Israel. Um, and uh, because of the iniquity of you and your fathers, this will happen. Um, there is a very corporate dimension to the Old Covenant, okay? Um, there is a, a sense in which um, the, you will experience God's blessing together and you will experience God's cursing together. Uh, the sin here is viewed particularly in a corporate sense as well as in an individual sense, like both things are in view. Um, but here, certainly the punishment is, as I said, I, I'm not really sure of a better way to put this, the general direction of the nation, right? And and so there is a there is a very corporate aspect of this covenant. And perhaps some of that is necessary just by the nature of the covenant. It is a family covenant through Abraham and the fact that it is it is national, right? God is creating a nation. This is by definition a corporate entity. And so we have a focus here on the fact that um they're they are they're suffering for the iniquity uh, their own iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. Uh, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, and they're and the way it says it says, and your uncircumcised heart is humbled. The idea of circumcision of the heart. We, I think we get the metaphor, right? That, as Paul says in Romans 4, circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, uh, but it's a matter of the heart. The one who's truly circumcised is the one who is set apart to God in their heart. Okay, and so, the, but that's not an idea that's original in Paul. It actually originates here in the Old Covenant, and um, which, which itself demands that it not just be an outward sign, but that something inward should change because you belong to the Lord. 
So if your uncircumcised heart is humbled and makes amends for your sin, then I will remember my covenant. There you are in the land that I've scattered you, exiled hundreds of miles away, and I will remember my covenant. And in the land of your enemies, I will not abhor you, for I am Yahweh, your God, and and I will, um, and I will remember the, my covenant. And we see what happens when God does eventually. He he brings them back into the land, and he blesses them, protects them. We see this, for example, in the books of, uh, say, Nehemiah. We see it in the book of Ezra. We see it in the book of Daniel, uh, and even a lot of things that Jeremiah uh, says. So, yeah, that's chapter 26. Um, then in chapter 27, uh, which is the final chapter of Leviticus, you have some final words, particularly about valuation and va- and vows, um, where if someone makes a vow and somewhere in the vow you have to value how much a person is worth, like, obviously, <laughs> obviously it's not as if, like, a person is only monetary value, right? But if you have some kind of situation involved where people where where price has to be put on a person in some sense um then here's how you're supposed to do that you're supposed to uh, for if they're male ages 20 to 60 you value them at 50 shekels um if they're female it's uh, 30 shekels and i think that this has to do not so much with intrinsic value um i think often when we're thinking in those terms we're kind of reading um we're kind of reading modern ideas back into the text. Um, this would seem to have to do more with earning potential, that how much value to a family, monetary value to a family is each individual. And um, for various reasons, um, males have have more monetary value in this culture than a woman does. And... Um, uh, the same goes with persons under 20, okay, young people. Uh, here, males are valued at five shekels and females at three. That is a that is a, a drastic difference. So if you're under 20, then you are uh, valued a tenth of what you are valued in terms of vows uh, as if you were over. And uh, again, a lot of this seems... To be to have to do with 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 uh, earning potential, uh, but um, beyond that, I'm not sure we can really speculate as to the reasoning behind some of these prices. Um, and uh, if if uh, if somebody paying this cannot afford this, then it is valued according to what they can afford. So the poor are not to be excluded from the general uh, kind of life of the the community in this way um then you have a bunch of laws about animals um houses uh lands and things like that that um might become dedicated in some way to the lord you have animals um you have um uh, unclean animals are redeemable and if you do then the priest values how much they are and you have to add a fifth to to redeem them uh, because uh, they're not; th- these are animals that can't be offered because they're in some way unclean. Um, you have um, the, the also if houses need to be redeemed, a priest values the house, and a fifth is added to it, much like we see in the guilt offering. Right, you add a fifth. Um, 
the land land is valued based on um, the amount of it avail how much can be seeded on it, how much can be grown on it, and it's to be also to be valued in relation to the proximity to the year of jubilee. We saw something like that yesterday. Again, redemption requires adding a fifth to it. Um, and you also that you were interested in you were introduced to an, an interesting topic, an important an important concept here as well. Uh, in verses 28 and 29, but no devoted thing that a man devotes to Yahweh of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to Yahweh. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Okay, all right, so we've had a bunch of ritual categories. Um, holy, common, clean, unclean. Here we are introduced to a new one, and this is devoted. Uh, this is, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky as to how to translate this. Translations are all over the place. Sometimes this can be called the ban. Um, uh, sometimes it's translated simply as devoted, sometimes devoted to destruction. Uh, the Hebrew expression is cherem, um, or haram, if it's the verb. And these things are treated as completely in the Lord's possession uh, to such an extent that they re- nothing, you're not to do anything else with them. Um, and, uh, and so these things are so utterly, quote-unquote, devoted to the Lord, I suppose you should say, that that they cannot be redeemed, and human beings who are devoted to the Lord are put to death. Now, this is a extremely rare thing. It's not as if somebody's like so righteous and they're like, well, as a reward for that, let us put you to death. No. A person becomes devoted to destruction when their sin reaches uh, such a fever pitch. Um, and it's not only so sinful, but that you've actually, you've def- your sin has defiled in a particularly heinous way something that is holy. Um, and this is the part of the religious ideology that goes behind the, um, the destruction of the Canaanites, as we will see in the book of Joshua, that, the, that they are placed under cherem uh, because they have defiled the land, which is holy to the Lord. Now, of course, there's a lot of other ethical things to say about that, I'm just bringing it up now here to introduce you to the concept of cherem, of being devoted, being put to the ban. Um, finally, um, we we learn a little bit about tithes here. We see this is the giving of a tenth. Uh, that's what a tithe means. Your tithes are to be holy, uh, and if you tithe land, um, so tithes, if they're animals, of course, they're they're um, not to be redeemed. Um, tithes are typically eaten. Um, and if it's land, it's to be redeemed, again, for added one-fifth. And, um, but yeah, so the, the concept of a tithe is also introduced here. A distinctively Old Testament concept, but one that in principle is helpful today. Like if I want to see like what what is a good way to value perhaps what I should give to the Lord— uh, one could do worse than starting with, say, a tithe, a tenth of what I've earned. Um, okay, 
And notice how the book ends. These are the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Uh, remember how the book started was, was God speaking now to Moses from the constructed sanctuary. Um, and the so, so the entire book of Leviticus is given also during this time on Mount Sinai. And um, now that that phase is coming to an end, and we are turning our attention to things other than strictly the giving of law. So that's it for the book of Leviticus. Um, uh, I hope you you learned a lot through that. Um, I know just talking through it uh, re- helped me reinforce a lot of ideas in my mind, and look forward to jumping into numbers tomorrow. Um, okay, let's go over to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs 7 is a terrific chapter, and we'll see why in the upcoming days. Here we just have a very simple reading, the first five verses, which again is instruction from a father to a son to treasure up commandments, to keep those commandments and live, um, to bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. Like You should be constantly aware of the dictates of wisdom. Don't just listen and then forget them. Do what you need to do, whatever you need to do. If you need to bind them on your fingers, do what you need to do to to remember them. Uh, Become intimately acquainted with them. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. And what are they going to do? Well, we're back to that subject that we saw in chapter six, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And uh, we recall that the word for adulteress here simply means something like foreign woman, uh, nokri, um, and uh, but but it's not talking about, of course, a foreign woman in the sense that we would think, like oh, someone from another country or another land. And you see that clearly because um, in chapter six, verse twenty-four, uh, the same expression is used. That and in both these verses, by the way, it's translated adulteress and. And the, the reason why being is when you look at the context, for example, what we will see in chapter 7, but here, uh, back there in chapter 6, verse 29, uh, remember it is, it is um, getting, getting together with the adulteress is getting together with one's neighbor's wife. It says that explicitly, so that is what is meant here by foreign woman, perhaps be better rendered as strange woman, but that's the, the concept of the adulteress so far, a woman who is not yours, but is uh, in some sense uh, uh, with another. And so to you, she is foreign. To you, she is a strange woman. All right, we're going to finish up today by beginning the book of Luke. So Luke begins in a very interesting way in the first four verses, where he kind of sets out... Um, something of his method and the purpose of his book. In in fact, you find out about somebody that he's actually writing this specifically for, Uh, whether uh, this Theophilus whom he addresses is a leader in a house church or something like that. We can't be sure. We don't know a lot else about him, except that he's also mentioned in the beginning of the book of Acts when Luke says something very similar. But notice that Luke talks about his use of sources, um, eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, um, uh, that that he's taken these things and he's kind of compiled, he's been following them closely, he's been anticipating perhaps a project like this where he could write an orderly account, um, 
uh, that and, and now by orderly account, I don't think it necessarily means that uh, Luke is writing in chronological order. There is obviously a lot of chronology here. He starts with the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. That, of course, is chronologically first. But when it gets into Jesus's ministry, Luke, among the uh, the other Gospels, um, tends to uh, arrange his material, uh, say, thematically um, and, and uh, in a way that fits with his logic um, in terms of the story that he wants to tell. Uh, Luke is particularly you know, I think that's one particularly distinctive characteristic of Luke. Not to say that the other gospel writers don't do stuff like that, but Luke particularly seems to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, his his desire is to write an orderly account, something carefully researched, in order that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. So he wants to give him something reliable. It is important for us to have high degrees of certainty in what we believe. Now, instead of starting with Jesus, the Gospel of Luke actually starts with the account of the birth of John the Baptist. Now, his father is a priest. Um, This is taking place in the days of Herod, Herod the Great. Um, And this priest, his name is Zechariah, and he has a wife from the daughters of Aaron, a priestly wife named Elizabeth. They're both described as righteous and blameless. These are exceedingly good people in God's eyes, uh, but also uh, they are childless. Elizabeth uh, struggles with infertility, and they are advanced in years. Um, On the day when he is chosen to burn incense, we know all about this, right? You go into the holy place. Now, this is in the temple that Herod had built, so, but it is nevertheless modeled initially after that prototypical tabernacle that we've been learning about in the Old Testament. And uh, he's chosen to go into the holy place, to the golden altar, and to burn incense. And you got all these people praying outside at the hour when this is to take place. And as he goes in, there's an angel standing on the right side of the altar. And Zechariah freaks out, falls down, and the angel tells him, don't fear. And um, uh, your 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 prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. And he begins telling them some stuff about them. You shall call his name John. Um, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. And he's going to be great before the Lord. Um, he is to maintain a certain level of holiness. You might recall, for example, in Leviticus 10 verse 9, um, priests are not allowed to drink alcohol and then to go on duty. Um, well, here he is to simply have no wine or no strong drink, um, but in that, and in that sense, kind of remain set apart for for um, for service to the Lord as holy. And what is it that he will do? Well, he will be filled with the Spirit. Um, this is keep in mind still in the old covenant era where this is not very common language to have to be filled with the Spirit. But he will be filled with the Spirit. And um, he will turn many of the children of Israel, notice how focused still on Israel this is, to the Lord. He's going to go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah, Elijah being one of like, kind of like the prototypical prophet um, who's sent to turn Israel's hearts. And so his, so John's job is going to be to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children um, and to, and, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, 
and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So notice this anticipation. Something big is going to happen, and John is to be a forerunner of it. And Zechariah says, how am, I, how, do I, how am I going to know these things, right? How do I know you're telling the truth here? And for that, Gabriel, who is the name of the angel, he identifies himself, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God, right? Gabriel strikes him mute. You, you are going to be unable to speak now until this child is born because you, you doubted. I, I, I'm here, I am an angel standing next to the altar of incense, and you're asking, how do you know what I say is, is true? And uh, when John comes out, indeed, he's unable to speak, and the people are able to deduce that he's had a vision, and, um, and, and he, he goes home, and um, Elizabeth does indeed conceive, and, uh, but for five months keeps herself hidden, saying, the Lord, thus the Lord has done for me, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. All right, that's it for today. Um, Thank you, as always, for joining me. I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye-bye.